What happens when we view addiction as the solution rather than the problem? Or reframe restrictive language such as addictive behaviors into expansive expressions such as brilliant strategies? What if underneath all that addictive behavior lies a whole and perfect person? What is a superpower? Are there in fact life advantages to be accrued by someone struggling with substance abuse? TJ Woodward addresses these questions and others as we attempt to reframe the modern addiction treatment model. Also, we will discuss TJ's theory of the three root causes of addiction, unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame, all of which are outlined in his book, Conscious Recovery. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Today, we are with TJ Woodward. And who are you, TJ, and why should anyone care? <laughs> well, that's a fundamental question I've been asking myself for many years. I'm a person in long-term recovery, 33 years, and also have been working in the addiction treatment field for over a decade. And I'm the creator of Conscious Recovery Method and the author of the book, Conscious Recovery. We can get more into that, but it's essentially a new modality and really bringing in a new paradigm in the addiction treatment field. And you are an ordained minister i don't quite understand your designation i know it's mysterious and amazing and i've always admired it from afar even though i didn't quite get it well thank you yes i actually have two ordinations i'm ordained as an awakened living minister which was a new thought center here in san francisco for many years and also now i'm affiliated with agape in los angeles dr michael bernard beckwith ordained me a couple of years ago and he is a really powerful spiritual teacher and i love our connection because he's really bringing in a new era in the new thought movement and in spirituality so in that way i just think our partnership is is really divinely inspired. Wow. So TJ, how do we know each other? We met, I believe in 2008, working at a high-end treatment program. I remember some very interesting conversations late night at that <laughs> at that center when we were we had 48 clients and it was an intense experience mm -hmm. and we instantly bonded on many many levels mm -hmm. and i remember kind of doing some of these late night conversations we often worked the 3 p.m to 11 p.m shift That's correct. and we were talking about how we want to be part of ushering in a deeper awareness with addiction treatment mm -hmm. and those were some of the really fun conversations about the unconscious and some ways that we can really be part of uh, really deepening the treatment paradigm for those of you listening at home who have no idea what high-end treatment really looks like. It's palatial. It's got those big vases that, you know, like Michael Jackson would buy. You know, they're like five feet tall with like stuff in them. Tablecloth, like white tablecloths everywhere and crystal this and three, you know, lobster tails a day if you wanted them. I mean, it was nuts. It was really just amazing that here we are. Like I was getting my hours uh, towards licensure and we were just like, like flabbergasted that we were being paid to to be here and do this and work with people struggling who would come in you know fresh off the plane <laughs> detoxing and tj would tj was masterful at calming people down and getting them focused and I, a lot of times the clients at Altamira would complain about every staff member except TJ, man. I'll just listen to him. I, I'll stay in treatment if TJ Woodward comes up here and talks to me. Well, thank you, Ben. That was actually, I, I mean, first of all, thank you, because that's a huge compliment. I really do honor that part of me that can hold a space for clients, a space of non-judgment and presence. And as you know, I was the person that was often called in when clients were having what we call in the field emotional dysregulation and what we call in layman's terms a meltdown or losing your shit <laughs> or losing your shit yeah so tj and i have a lot of experience in addiction tj is I, i'd say more grounded in it than i am as uh, i do not have a substance abuse problem per se i have an eating disorder but that's in a different kind of a realm tj can you tell us a little bit about just a brief your brief story about your struggles with substance Absolutely. And Ben, you know me well, so asking me to do it briefly is tricky, but I'll do my best. We so, only have an hour and a half. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I am going to go way back, but only briefly because okay. it's an important part of my story. I remember being a really, really happy child in very, very early childhood. Toddler. I have a lot of really early memories. I remember being in my crib and being filled with joy. I remember laying in my backyard and mesmerized by life. And something started shifting around ages five, six, and seven. And of course, now, you know, having the knowledge that we have, we recognize those are the years where.
where we start to really become aware of some of the dysfunction that's happening around us. I grew up in a household where it looked really good on the outside. We had a four-bedroom house. We had two cars. But there was an energy field uh, with my parents and their relationship. My mom had some mental health issues. My dad uh, had some addiction issues that weren't substance but involved uh, sex and being in relationships with lots of women that were not my mother. And so I absorbed a lot of that. I also, uh, you know, pretty much early on recognized that I was gay, even though I didn't have a word for that. Growing up in the 1970s in Indiana, that wasn't always applauded and celebrated. So around the age seven, uh, I had an experience of shutting down and building a wall around my heart. And I remember like it was yesterday, I was sitting at my dining room table and I remember a physical sensation of closing, a, a closure that happened around my heart. I walked around that way, uh, feeling damaged, feeling broken, feeling like the world wasn't safe until age 13 when I discovered weed and alcohol. And it brought a lot of relief for me. The reason that uh, that's an important part of the story is the basis of conscious recovery, the first principle is a question, and that is, what if under Neath all addictive behavior is a whole and perfect person. That was my experience. I felt whole and perfect, and then I felt damaged. I built walls. I had all these strategies to survive and remain safe. And, and then uh, my drinking and using was from age 13 until 20. I did get sober really young, ironically, about 50 days before my 21st birthday, and that really began my journey. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a short version, but that um, fundamentally the important piece is I don't look at drugs and alcohol as the problem or even addiction as a problem but I look at it as a solution, and a solution that worked really well mm -hmm. for a period of time and then quit working. Yeah. One of my joys in this work is to watch somebody who struggles with substance abuse redirect their power uh, towards a new thing. My, my feeling is, is that folks, in it, folks who are struggling with substances are actually having a spiritual or, or struggling to get a spiritual awakening they're trying really, really hard to heal themselves and get back to what you said, their perfect self. I yes. think that's a nice way of putting it. There's this term in our field called the identified patient, which basically means the black sheep of the family or their, whatever friend group they're part of. But actually, they're the ones that are grappling with their darkness and shadows in ways that most people are not. They're the ones that are working the hardest. I mean, think of what people do to get their substance. They steal, they lie, they cheat, they hide things, they, they manage it all, and all the while, they're, some, they're still trying to get their spiritual fix. Absolutely, and that's the key, right? It's like we have our umbilical cord in our hand trying to plug in somewhere, please feed me, please help me feel connected. Yeah. And we know now that connection is a huge part of addiction, right? Disconnection. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's really a connection with the essential self like mm -hmm. you're talking about. And so many of our clients uh, have a lot of trauma, have disconnection, have shame. I've identified those as the three root causes of addiction. It's unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm. Spiritual disconnection, mm -hmm. and I mean disconnecting from that essential self, for sure, and toxic shame. There is this innate desire to heal within all human beings mm -hmm. and it seems to be even more elevated with our clients and certainly in my own journey getting sober i felt so disconnected so empty so broken so damaged and i was desperately trying to find right. someone or something to bring relief the thing about tj woodward and myself is that we we come from things from a very different angle but we come to the same conclusion um, I agree with almost no way that he <laughs> approaches. He's he's very like forgiving and sort of like doesn't give you direct answers all the time, and is sort of flowery and amazing, and uses all these awesome words and just really open and kind. And I'm like, no, fuck you, stop using drugs, you asshole. And so, but at the end of the day, we get to the same spot. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is the essential self that you're. I really like that term we don't get addicted to the substance per se. We do get physically addicted to it, but we get addicted to what drugs, how they feel or, or what they do for us in the sense that if you, like I had a client who, you know, when she was in uh, social situations, she was, a I think, a natural introvert, but she walked around as an extrovert, very talkative, and, and she, she would get very anxious in social groups. And so when she was drinking, she could open up and talk to people. Now, it wasn't the substance per se, the alcohol that she was addicted to, the cocaine that she was addicted to. It was the substance of the people of the connection to the people that's like suddenly she could get that 
in conscious recovery. And I appreciate that you say we come from a really different place. There was a period where we worked for many years and we were doing several groups a week and clients would say, wow, you and Ben could not be more different, but somehow you end up in the same place. And that same place is, I know that you're passionate about the work of Carl Jung and looking at the unconscious and the shadow. And we both address that, but in a completely different way. Yep. And I love the name of your, your podcast, you know, just tell me what to do. And I'm the opposite of that. I'm never going to tell someone what to do. And that's the interesting piece. Such a mistake. <laughs> Go ahead. And I, and I do feel that some people really do want to be told what to do. Yeah. And one of the reasons I love working with the team is there were, there were certain clients that you absolutely would be able to work with much more successfully than I did and yeah. the opposite. So yeah. I love that. Uh, the essential self, let's talk about that for a moment. When we disconnect from that essential self, that's what, what happens is we bury, bury everything in the shadow, right? Those parts of ourselves that seem too painful to look at. Uh -huh. When we're carrying these core beliefs like your client could be, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. We don't know exactly which one, but some variation of that. When that's the seed that we plant in our unconscious or subconscious, that's the tree that grows. Yeah. We develop strategies to try to manage that, usually really early in childhood. So her strategy may have been to be the life of the party and the one that is so likable. And underneath that, she's feeling um, pain, disconnection. Mm -hmm. Once we start to address not only the strategy, but get down to the core belief she's holding, mm -hmm. that's where the true healing comes in. And I also want to frame this in a, in a clinical way a bit. And now you could disagree i kind of want you to actually I, I feel like we're addressing the deep end of substance abuse or recovery the shallow end and i don't mean that in the sense that it's not important it's very important but the shallow end would be detoxing learning really hardcore dbt skills to calm yourself down in the moment self-care so that you're not frazzled so that you don't do things like use drugs because you didn't get enough sleep and there's a lot of containment that happens in the first i'd say three to six months of recovery it's like setting a bone in a leg like a broken bone and then the deeper work physical therapy and all the rest of that cool stuff comes later and i feel that there's too much emphasis in our society on this shallow end and i don't mean that in a demeaning way but in the in the more more surface or extroverted end of treatment. And then everyone's like, why is everybody relapsing? Well, they're relapsing because they're not reading TJ's book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know you've requested that I disagree with you, but I cannot because oh, I am totally on board with you. Shoot. I think the shallow end is extremely important, but yeah. here's the issue with the shallow end. Most treatment stops there. It sure does. And most treatment even has an unconscious BS belief system or a strategy for treatment where we say, we're not here to do that deeper work. We're here to stabilize people and get them the help they need. Of course, that's useful. Of course, it's important to stabilize someone. Right. The issue is, though, at least 50% of our clients are relapsing because they're not going into the deep end, right? right? So yeah, they're getting detoxed. Uh, they're getting some life skills. They're getting some support. Yep. Maybe they go to a 12-step program or yep. they go to another you know, group therapy. They're getting all of that where they're getting stabilized, but then there's a period of time that passes and it's no longer, that's, we call it the honeymoon period or the pink cloud, yeah. right? And then the, the shit starts to get real. Mm -hmm. And if we don't don't address the underlying trauma and the shame, mm -hmm. there's going to be continual relapse. Mm -hmm. So what I want to see shift in the treatment paradigm is that we don't say it's this or that, or we aren't so arrogant to say that we have the one answer, yeah. but there are multiple different types of treatment that are appropriate for different people depending yeah. on where they're at. The problem here is that the medical model, which is amazing because it can do things like, you know, put a pacemaker in your heart and stop you from dying, is being applied here. And it's based on what is measurable. And the problem with that philosophy that people don't realize, well, I don't know what they realize. We don't know what we can't measure. And so the medical, the scientific model, I suppose, it seems to assume that what we can measure is the entirety of the universe. But in fact, our ability to measure is simply a measure of what we've measured. Right. Of and what it, we can perceive. Yeah, what we can perceive, absolutely. And, and it's a, silly. A, a simple way to say it is it was a fact that the world is, was flat at one point, right? It was. Because that's all we could perceive. Now, that doesn't mean that the world was actually flat at that time. Of course, there are flat earthers on the planet now, and I'm actually... That's a fact. I'm kind of <laughs> obsessed with them, to tell you the truth. Oh, they're amazing. And I'll tell you why I am, because... 
I recognize that I do that too. We all do that. Yeah. It's usually not conscious, right? Yeah. So we say, no, I can see it. That's why I love flat earthers. They say, well, which is more logical that the earth is flat? You can look and see that it's flat right. or we're on this ball spinning in space at this certain speed and rotating. Right. They're like, that's not plausible. And I invite <laughs> all of us to take a look at what perspective I'm holding. Yeah. There's so much we don't know. And yeah. science, true science is really not only measuring, but also living in the infinite question, right? Mm -hmm. So we could get into the whole discussion of the quantum field, but we're recognizing that there's so much we don't know and that when we live in the question, we expand into new levels of awareness. Let me ask you this, because I hear this stuff talked about, you know, even in dual, di the term dual diagnosis just means like substance abuse issue with an underlying thing like depression or anxiety is sort of the Western civilization's first attempt at talking about this, the unconscious. Right. But still, the unconscious is not new. So my question for you is, do you feel that the, the, the ideas that you and I are positing are anywhere as close to, to radical as like Galileo when he said the earth is round? Well, I hope so. I mean, I yeah. hope it is because great news is I'm actually about to, uh, conscious recovery is about to enter into a clinical study because I choose to say I live in this or on this earth okay. and I work within the systems that are established while also recognizing there's so much happening that I don't know and that my mind can't conceive of. So two avenues here. One is my empirical evidence. In other words, what I've seen and what I have felt and what I have witnessed. I've worked in treatment programs where I've had pushback, therapists even coming to me saying, you're taking our, our, our clients too deep. They're dysregulating. I'm afraid they're going to relapse. My response is, I honor what you're saying. We're not trying to push someone into their shadow or push someone into their trauma. Right. But if it's in the room, we don't want to unconsciously stop it. Yeah. My response to that is they're actually actually relapsing because they're not going in the deep end. What I recognize is when we get down to the deep, in other words, the unconscious, the subconscious, the essential self, when we start working in that realm, things happen that are beyond the human mind, what we can conceive of. Yes. Having said that, Conscious Recovery is about to be part of a clinical study where we're going to get some evidence. And my hope is by the end of 2020, it will be um, an evidence-based uh, treatment modality. That's fascinating and amazing and good for you. It's interesting that the thing you told me about the therapists, I often feel that therapists will make objections because they're actually uncomfortable. That's 100% of the time, yeah, right? So like, when I do trainings with therapists and counselors, we spend the entire first day on what it means to hold a space. And holding a space simply means a recognition that my consciousness is in the room. So if I'm working with someone who is wanting or needing to address their sexual trauma and I haven't worked on my own, I'm either going to consciously or unconsciously stop the process because Maybe I'm not aware of it, but I'm uncomfortable going to a place that I haven't gone. Yeah. The way I can help someone address their own shadow is mm -hmm. by addressing mine. 100% of the time, mm -hmm. doing my own work, recognizing that I do have these core beliefs, these core ideas, this trauma to heal. Mm -hmm. And the more I heal, the more I can hold a space for someone without getting in there and trying to manipulate or control the, the, the session or the group. Just so I understand, holding space, is that like the Jungian idea of the container where they, yes, you're not. Yes. Okay. So my understanding is that in, in my thing, you take a, a beaker and you put a chemical one, that's the client, you put chemical two, that's the patient, and you get a third element that arises and that you can't violate that space and you've got to honor whatever. You are not in charge. My old therapist said therapy does. Right. You are not in charge of what happens in that room. And if you do think you're in charge, you're not doing your job. Correct. And most okay. of it's unconscious, right? Yeah. So I think what happens in good therapy, you and I have been part of some really amazing teams, uh -huh. certain directors in particular, yeah. uh, have led us to a path where we get to come together in a room and really explore. The issue is it usually starts in the shallow end with the therapist too, right? Yeah. Am I trying to control or am I allowing it to happen? Uh -huh. What I do with conscious recovery is that exact framework, but just a little bit deeper, right? Like right. what's happening? in the subconscious or the unconscious do i have a perspective about what this person needs to do okay. here's a controversial statement please even if i'm attached to my client healing or in my mind getting better i may miss an opportunity it doesn't mean i'm not going to want them to get better but when i go into a session mm -hmm. oh i really hope they have a breakthrough or i really hope she gets this this time i'm missing the opportunity of what might need to transpire holding a space is going in as empty as possible especially my mind and holding a space and allowing as you're saying therapy 
therapy or counseling to happen. It's a very, very different framework. Yeah, and I find that as I get to know my patients better and better, that paradigm happens more. And, or in the, and usually in the beginning stages, it's very, you know, this is the thing and here we go and let's look at this. And then after a while, it just becomes this sort of weird, completely undefinable, I don't know what. And we all have different ways of approaching it. I, my, my approach is pretty much to walk in and hold a space. Certain clients, I will have to say to them, just so you know, my style is to you know be silent. Let me know if that's not comfortable for you. But I've definitely had clients that have said, why are you staring at me? <laughs> right. <laughs> but for the most part, they're more open because yeah. it's not about the stare, right? It's not about the body language. It's yeah. about the energy. One of the things I talk a lot about in my trainings are that we have now recognized that 10 to 15% of communication is verbal. Most people then say the rest is body language, but yeah. I think it's another 10 or 15%. The rest is energy. Yeah. And if that sounds too out there for someone, I'm going to bring it back to something that's really grounded actually in science and that is life is energy yeah. and we know that that chair that you're sitting is it isn't really solid it's whirling energy right yeah. and little kids especially pre-verbal when we're babies we're mm -hmm. purely absorbing the energy of our environment mm -hmm. psychology understands that science understands that spirituality understands that we're at a place right now where it's merging beautifully the mm -hmm. quantum quantum mechanics and this whole quantum science is yeah. recognizing the observer has a profound effect. Yes. The Western medical model is I'm the expert as the doctor or the clinician, and I'm here to help you identify what's wrong. And that means what are your symptoms and how do I eradicate? That's great, but it's we're definitely in this in the shallow end with that. Really, what we want to do is get down to holding the space so that we can observe our clients through the lens of the infinite possibilities and of their essential truth or their mm -hmm. essential nature and a recognition that the ability to heal is within them, not within me. It's a game changer. Sometimes I wonder them if my direct style sometimes develops a sense of trust, not that I'm like this good demigod, but the sense of trust like, oh, this person's confident. And that it's their confidence and my confidence that that is healing. Yeah. And, and not, this, and, not and, the content of what I'm saying at all. Yeah. And again, you work brilliantly with a certain personality type, really, or a, a certain set of, um, let's say, symptoms, right? But mm -hmm. underneath that, we get that's how we get to the same place, right? So you work with a lot of like high powered CEO types, yeah. right? And yeah. I, I think me just holding a space for them might not be as effective in the beginning, not the beginning. as this direct. But I also work with. But it would still know, work. What's that? It would still work eventually. It, it still works eventually, right? Yeah. We just have a different way to address it in the beginning. And and just for my own branding, I do actually work with a lot of people who are not like that. And I don't always have this direct <laughs> kind of, I just have to say this. I'm very direct, but I'm not always that way. Like if I have somebody in my office who looks like they're going to break, or if they just don't respond to that kind of thing, I, I'm, I sit back and I try to channel my inner TJ. It's not easy, but I do it. Uh, well, well, what you do, what you spoke to is the most important thing. And that's building the relationship. Can you tell me what toxic shame is because i don't i kind of know what that means but I, I don't know what that means yeah I, the the simplest way to say it is there's a difference between guilt and shame guilt is a belief i've done something wrong shame uh -huh. is a belief i am wrong uh -huh. it's interesting in our culture today that Brene brown is getting credit for that framework it's been around for a long time you know john bradshaw <laughs> in the 1980s was a pioneer in oh, really? looking at shame his book healing that shame that binds you in the mid 80s was groundbreaking because he was saying addiction is about shame now mm -hmm. it's multi-faceted but it's a huge part mm -hmm. shame simply said is a belief in my own brokenness right some of the modalities focus again we're going to go back to the theme they focus on the symptoms right guilt is i believe i've done something wrong so if i stole 500 dollars from you and i feel guilty about it i pay you back and hopefully everyone feels better but if it's shame i go into a story or a narrative oh my god i'm broken because i did that right and so if someone walks i mean obviously if someone is walking around feeling like they're a terrible person and all of a sudden they do cocaine and they feel awesome that must be correct just astonishing right and so tj's thing is like he'll identify oh this person has toxic shame around this thing and you'll just jump into whatever the roots of that are do you have any anecdotes about people d either diving into toxic shame or, or just you holding space or doing the things that you do where you really saw a switch 
Absolutely. One of my, a profound moment in my life back in the day, way back in the day, I was often called in when people were having a meltdown or Mm -hmm. as you said, losing their shit. But there was a a young woman, she had been unexpectedly asked to move from her top floor room to the basement. The upstairs room is fantastic. It has the sunken bathtub and these beautiful windows overlooking the bay and the city of San Francisco. And John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Rowe stayed there in the 60s. Correct. And what happened, and this is really important what happened is she started having an experience of you're not moving me downstairs she became angry she became tearful she became dysregulated and what happened is the counselors came to me and said this client is being really entitled she thinks she deserves the upstairs room can you please sit with her and she wanted to leave right so she was packing her bags which was often the case it's so intolerable that I have to get out of here she's having a fight flight or freeze response so I took her to the beautiful deck and we just sat down and and I remember my dedication walking into the conversation was I'm not going to really address the issue of the room I'm going to hold a space and really be present with what's happening so we sat I asked her what was happening she was speaking with all the things that were happening in a very elevated way angry hurt and as I held the space something happened and it was really profound she broke down into tears and remembered that she had been sexually abused in the basement of her home oh my gosh so it wasn't the entitlement at all it was being moved into the basement that was what we call trigger what i call activate it was activating this wound that had not been healed and she hadn't even had a conscious memory of it because she had been drinking and using for a decade because of it so that was the moment her treatment could begin right and her therapist what did you say to her i have been working on you know her working on her for like three three weeks and we weren't getting anywhere and i said it wasn't anything i said it was that i saw her as a whole imperfect person beyond her symptoms and that's where her therapy could begin we actually got her to a different therapy therapist that had a lot of trauma experience she stayed in treatment obviously i don't know where she is today but that was a big breakthrough that allowed her to move into starting to work on the 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 deep shame and trauma that's a beautiful story i don't know if this is even worth mentioning but i do a lot of dream analysis and usually basements are about the uh, the subconscious when someone has a dream of a basement and it's just even though that wasn't necessarily germane to what she was experiencing it's still amazing that a literal move into a literal basement brought up a memory that happened in a basement that was also in the basement of her mind right and and the key here is we would have missed it if we would have said oh just leave her in the great room it's right, fine she's right. just being entitled yeah, yeah. when once we label someone based on how they're presenting instead of what's happening in a deeper level yeah. i love your analogy because even if she hadn't been sexually abused in the basement it could have been symbolic of going into this darker space and all the stuff that comes yeah. up i mean it could have been a, a, a hundred different things yeah could have been her not seeing herself as worthy of the big room so yeah. there, there's all these layers yeah. when i go in as an open and field instead of deciding what I think it is, that's where the miracles happen because we, instead of me trying to direct it, I'm just open to what needs to emerge. Can I ask you about your style for a minute? Sure. When you were sitting with a client, do you literally say nothing? I kind of poke and pry and sometimes I'm quiet, but you, I'm curious moment to moment, really, what do you actually do? What does it look like? So I start every session with permission of the client with a brief um, mindfulness exercise. One thing just to to name here too is I'm coming in in a unique way because I'm coming in as a spiritual care person, not as a therapist, right? Right. So there's maybe a different expectation right out of the gate. So they're they're usually more comfortable with- Probably a better one, but- (laughs) Well, just different, right? And that's why I love working in a team because like when I partner with you, you're doing therapy, I'm doing spiritual care and there's a place it meets, right? So I start with just very brief, setting an intention, inviting them to close their eyes. There's a lot of information there. What do you mean by setting an intention? So so I can actually tell you exactly, I can walk you through exactly Please. what it looks like. So Ben, yes, TJ. really happy that we're meeting yes. th- this afternoon. And I'm wondering if you would be willing, I like to start my sessions with just a little bit of a mindfulness moment. Is that okay with you? Absolutely, let's do okay, it. Okay, so I just invite you, if you feel comfortable, gently close your eyes and we start by taking a nice deep breath. And on the exhale, simply allowing ourselves to bring our full attention and intention to the room, just noticing how it feels to be here. 
And then shifting awareness back to the breath, taking a couple of more deep inhales and exhales. And just allowing ourselves to move within and really giving ourselves permission to become present with the inner life. So we set the intention for our time together to be open and receptive and trust that exactly what wants and needs to emerge will. We're simply willing to explore in that field. And we'll just take a few moments in the silence. And then as you feel ready, you can bring your awareness back into the room and gently open your eyes. So that's how I'll start a session because it allows someone to really become present. That and then was awesome, by the way. <laughs> I feel already, I feel better. Right, and so so people land, right? So then I'll say, um, this session can be whatever you'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. um, just so you know, my style is to be okay with with silence. And so we'll just see what emerges. So what do you want today to be? And then she or he will either bring something or not. They might have something specific. They uh -huh. might say, I'm working on this in therapy. And then the key for me is to be really present. Right. And the questions come from a deeper place then. So it's yeah. not that I don't ask anything. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm I'm drilling into this um, is because my my old therapist Seymour would say that therapy is impossible to define, and he'd also said that consciousness is impossible to define, and that healing and wholeness and all those things are totally impossible to define. Which means that ultimately none of us know what we're doing. <laughs> and so I don't. When I look at TJ, I don't see someone who isn't a clinician. When I look at a clinician, sometimes I see somebody with a PhD, and I think that's the, the limit of what your mind went to that limit and stopped well it, it, it's great because <laughs> einstein you know this is going to be a paraphrase but it says we all have innate intelligence yeah but if you judge a frog by its ability to climb a tree right and i remember working with a neuroscientist she is amazing she did all the neuropsych testing at a treatment program uh -huh. and all the neurofeedback they asked her to facilitate a group once and i sat in and it was literally a train wreck and she was like i don't i am great with giving someone feedback on neuroscience and all that testing but i can't facilitate a group to save my life yeah. so it's not that we have less intelligence we're all differently abled yeah for sure can we talk a little bit about you mentioned earlier how language keeps us the language that we use limits us can you yeah so language the common language we use every day is either expansive or it constricts, right? So it expands or constricts. A lot of the language we use in the mental health field and the addiction treatment field really are uh, identifying, again, we're identifying with the brokenness of someone rather than the wholeness. So if we say, what are your coping mechanisms? If you think about coping, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm just trying to cope. I call them brilliant strategies, right? right. Whether that's building a wall around your heart or using cocaine or um, having sex five times a day, what is it you're trying to manage, right? What if it was brilliant on some level? Uh, I'm not saying it's so brilliant, let's keep doing it. But right. we're saying that when we open up to that, we have more possibilities. Right. I also don't use the word trigger because trigger implies that someone or something is making me feel something, right. which we know isn't true. So if I say, Ben, you're triggering me right now, <laughs> it's really something getting activated within. Activated is so much better word. So such much a, better. Such a better word. Don Miguel Ruiz in his book, The Four Agreements says, it's not your words that hurt me, it's that you've touched a wound Ooh. and i take it a little further and i say and it's being touched because it's wanting to heal right so if if i say you're triggering me and i need to set a boundary and a boundary usually is set up as a wall that a line you can't cross right that's not going to allow me to heal because right. i'm just managing the external do you know what jay-z said he said when you reveal you heal <laughs> that's right when you reveal you heal so expansion and contraction do you, what, what do you mean by that as far as the positive aspect of language i just wasn't really clear on what okay so I'll, I'll give a really controversial one okay in some recovery circles there's a strong focus on character defects okay right? what are your character defects and how do you get rid of them oh boy so right there like I'm, zits 
call, yeah, and I'm calling you defective. I'm not saying, Ben, you're defective, but right. I'm saying, what are your character flaws or your character defects? Right. And it's really not about that, right? So you and I love to talk about superpowers. Yes, we you do. You do an entire group on superpowers. I do indeed. The issue is not good, bad, right, wrong, but effective or not effective, right? Is this serving me and this relationship or is it not? So if I look at it in terms of character defects, I end up on some level calling myself defective. I just had an interview recently and the host said, well, I have all these character defects that keep me stuck. Well, yes, but it's not the defects that are keeping us stuck. It's the framing them as defects that's keeping us stuck. It's the fact that we're saying we're stuck is keeping us stuck. Correct. And the issue, and this will be maybe lean into a little controversy too. I'm curious about treatment uh, in general. Is there an unconscious bias of wanting one to be the authority? And therefore, if I'm the authority, I need you to stay sick. And that's interesting, right? Whoa. Because we look at that in family systems, but that's in treatment systems too. You and I worked with a therapist that I'll, I'll just she or he will remain nameless but the conversation in all the clinical staff meetings was about their client's brokenness and how they know she's not ready for that level of healing and i'm still trying to create a safe space for her because yeah. she can't heal yet and it's not safe because and, the clinician feels broken and the clinician wants to feel better than that patient correct and this is also a little bit controversial oh good but i recall this is a dig at therapists i'm sorry fellow therapists but at those meetings, whenever there was a really attractive patient, female patient, young, the older female clinicians were brutal, mm. brutal, and would not, it was just like, she's this and she's that. And it was just like, wow, man. Well, I'll tell you, they said she's provocative, right? They would label her as provocative a lot. She's causing a disruption in groups because some of the clients are, and you know, it goes on and on. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I want to just give a shout out to our former director, Melissa Stevenson, one yeah. of my just favorite people in this field, because she's not going to just let that go. She's going to say, wow, I'm noticing <laughs> she that would, we're talking in a particular way about this client. Let's explore that. She would, oh my God, she would nail us to the, she would nail a therapist to the wall. In the most gentle and loving way oh it would be painful though <laughs> <laughs> then you would squirm in your seat and i would just get the popcorn you know i would she's made me squirm several times but i just like you know what this is horrible and i'm just gonna sit here and bleed this is cool okay i'm learning something because she clearly knows something i don't and is that even true um i don't know but i know that melissa would say things that I definitely, definitely needed to hear. Absolutely, like right. So maybe it's that there was a place within us that wasn't as aware. Like she, we're off track, but I don't care. I said something about my behavior in group and how I was, I don't know, I made a joke and I was talking about making, I forget what it was, but Melissa looked at me and she said, and this is an insupervision with all my, all my colleagues. She's like, Ben, are you, do you just want your, your patients to like you? Mm. It's like, ow, yeah, ouch. Yeah. Ouch, that's true. That's really true. That's because that's my wounding. My wounding is around and not, not feeling because I was a fat kid and I didn't have any social skills, not right. feeling like I belong, not feeling I have any friends. And then suddenly you're in this position of power and all of a sudden these people are looking at you Google-eyed like you know something and it's kind of like, wow, it's really amazing. Yeah. And she called that shit out. And it's interesting because if, if it helps, she said to me one time, I know you love having these deep connections with clients, but is it always serving the other people in the room? Hmm. Okay, so then let's let's just even go a little deeper here. How about Krista Gilbert? Oh, Jesus. So Krista oh, Gilbert is now the CEO of Constellation Behavioral Health, and she was our first, well, my first clinical supervisor. I would do supervision with her, and I also, you know, I, I one of the things I appreciate about myself is I'm pretty bold, right? So yeah. I went to Krista, who she was the clinical director at the time, and then the CEO, and I said, can we have lunch in your office together once a week? Sure, okay. <laughs> so we would get our salads and go upstairs, and I I would have an opportunity to ask her what she notices or what she witnesses. She is probably one of the most attuned and intuitive people I know. And yeah. she would say, remember on Wednesday at lunch, you walked down into the dining room and there was a moment that you paused and looked over to your left. What was going on? 
Wow. Really, I would say, wow, that was a moment that I felt inadequate. That was a moment that I felt, and she would see it, right? Really? I remember standing in the dining room and looking over into where the coffee and tea was yeah. one time, and we had this just really interesting energetic exchange, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be at the topic of our lunch yeah. right now. Wow. Uh, so that kind, and really what we're talking about, yeah. both of those two, that's holding space. Yeah, I see. Yeah, she once called me out for being inauthentic, and it changed my life because i was i was clowning i was like showing off i was like being funny and not, not being a human and i didn't even know what that meant yeah. until she like did her thing and 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 i have not been the same since that conversation yeah she's she's a she's a uh, shape shifter so i guess what we're talking about is shape shifting yeah. uh, i often talk about the way speaking of language um one of the ways that i have reframed i don't use the, actually use the word trauma very much anymore because i think it is reductive and limiting i talk about shaping and the analogy is that if a tree is on a hillside and it's windblown, it gets shaped by its environment. I love a that. bonsai is the same way. It's perfectly functional. It's a beautiful tree. It's tiny and it's adapted to its environment, not very, not enough to earth. We are all shaped in yes. a certain way. And once we figure out what our shape is, then we know where we need to grow. And then once we know what we need to grow, then we need we we figure out what our work is. Like if my I was shaped on it, frankly, to be pretty narcissistic because mm -hmm. I didn't have the approval I needed as a child and I didn't have any social skills. So my problem is that I, when I'm around someone, I try to impress them Yeah, constantly. I'm trying to do it right now. I'm trying to impress you. I'm trying to impress these people who listen to this stupid podcast. Stupid podcast. <laughs> Great podcast. And <laughs> no, I am. That's why I'm doing podcasts. I right. want to be amazing. I want to sign right. like the fucking sun. I get it. But my work when I'm talking to somebody is, especially women, because that's so difficult to talk to women when you're because it brings up all your desire to be wanted and all this stuff right and so i have to remind myself connect stop time trying to impress this person connect connect don't tell them about any of your accomplishments like i'll make a rule like and, I, and that's part of my work and even though it's kind of pedantic and sort of didactic and kind of well i have to when i'm talking to an attractive woman who I consider attractive i have to tell myself i have to go i have to be really kind of shallow and say don't talk about your jujitsu. Don't talk about your profession. Don't talk about how much weight you've lost. Don't talk about your education. Don't talk about the fact that you live in a nice apartment. Don't talk about any of those things. Those are the rules. Ask her how she's doing. Talk about, just follow the thing. And it's so hard. What you're speaking to is something that is so vital to me, and it's the foundation of conscious recovery. And I know a lot of your work, the symptom is what we would label as narcissism, right? right. And so that's my issue with diagnosing. It's not that it's not useful. Right. Uh, the issue is we end up labeling someone as their symptom instead of getting down to what's under it. Yeah. Usually, not always, usually the core belief is the opposite in some way. Right. The strategy, the brilliant strategy, is what we label as narcissism controversial statement right now the the dsm is a, if you don't know what the dsm is it's the manual that the mental health field uses to give people diagnoses the only test is symptoms it's a little bit crazy it's totally crazy my friend dr jason schiffman who i'll give a shout out to who's brilliant and the director of camden center he says it would be like going to a medical doctor and and the doctor saying ben you have broken leg syndrome <laughs> right so it's purely based on a cluster of symptoms sure right if you have three of these and two of those we call that borderline personality disorder that we do let me be clear the reason we intended or the intended purpose is to help treat the issue is we end up viewing the person as their diagnosis so rather than saying ben you're having these symptoms you might call narcissism i wonder what's underneath it let's explore where that developed what shaped that yeah when did that become a strategy we end up saying ben is narcissistic and then right there uh -huh. it's it, we've severed the possibility of the healing. Yes, because we're more preoccupied with a set of behaviors, what a bunch of people in a room. Like if you open the DSM, the first five pages are the authors of the DSM. How is it possible that there can be authors of, of our psyche? Well, and maybe a little bit more controversial again. There was a time when homosexuality was in the DSM as a mental disorder. DSM so we do evolve yeah. and grow and, and shift. We shape shift ourselves. Can I ask an, a sort of an odd question? This is a total sidebar. Gender dysphoria 
is in the DSM-5 and it's new. And I know a lot of folks in the, is it okay to say trans community? It sure is. Okay, because the, the, the verbiage here is really important. I got to step lightly. At this point, I believe it is. And okay. it's always changing. Would be, would probably, are probably really offended that their stuff is in the DSM. Like, And that's new. And when I read it, I'm like, I'm wondering if this is analogous to homosexuality appearing in the DSM-3. And I'm just curious, what do you think? Yes, 100%. What I really would love to see as the true shift in the paradigm would be a manual that would talk about the core beliefs, the core wounding, the yeah. core shaping, yeah. right? And I, I really love that you're moving beyond trauma. Of course, conscious recovery, the entire first chapter is unresolved trauma. Well, One of the downsides about writing a book is as I evolve, I have to either go back and rewrite it or just accept that it was the best I could do at that moment. Yeah, it's just it's just verbiage, you know. It's a, with the English language, we all use it. I, I mean, I'm I want to write a book someday about that kind of difference, and that's a big statement to to take terms like that and move them. So don't 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 worry about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really like what you said about what are the brilliant possibilities? What did you say? I call them brilliant strategies, yeah. but also infinite possibilities. Yeah. So infinite possibilities, I think is also like the, I talk about superpowers a lot. What that is, however you've been shaped in life, you have certain ways that you've compensated and that will help you shine like the sun. So for instance, narcissism is a superpower if used correctly. I can get up in front of a thousand people and so can you, Mr. Woodward, yep. and be completely at ease because we love it right yes. and that is a superpower for sure yes and it's because we were shaped in the way we were shaped and every single person who has any kind of quote unquote big big fat air quotes deficit 100 percent has a compensatory flavor or part of them that shines like the sun absolutely and so just kind of going back to the whole idea of character defects rather than looking at them as defects we could say these are superpowers and i recognize when i have the volume turned up to a certain level it becomes uh, not effective or mm -hmm. you know i feel isolated or it's not helping me feel connected when i have that volume turned to a certain level they're highly useful right so i i love those parts of myself that some might call narcissistic because it does allow me to get like my message out to a much larger audience yeah my first spiritual teacher mary helen brownell basically conscious recovery is an extension of her work that she modeled for me right. but she was a very introverted person in yeah. a really beautiful way she did profound work one-on-one -on -one yeah. with people sitting with someone for hours and doing sessions right. she worked with um uh, soldiers coming back from the war you know in the 70s Wow. and really really helped some healing she would not get up and speak in front of even five people much less five thousand wow so we all have our gifts right yeah. so rather than looking at it as like oh she's this beautiful being that can sit and have right. these intense three-hour sessions that's not me as much right. you know but she couldn't get up on a stage going back to that einstein quote yeah so let me not compare myself but recognize that even the strategies have a purpose yeah and i also want to talk about the gift of addiction which is that if you have an addictive thing and you go into treatment or you start looking at yourself the gift of addiction is as uh, as follows either improve or die <laughs> yeah and and i mean you know i laugh and and it is a part of the work that is painful yeah you know i mean you and i have lost clients we not yeah. current clients but when we hear later you yeah. know a client didn't get better or heal from their addiction they ended up dying it is very sad yeah the gift in it though is that i think what you're saying and tell me if this is what you mean is there's that sense of if i don't do this work i might die yes and that allows someone to almost feel or be forced into doing some of this work that is a gift of addiction did you want to talk a little bit about the 12 steps in your relationship to it yeah, I would love to talk about the 12 steps and my relationship with it. 12 steps saved my life. I got sober in 1986. And when I got sober at that time, there's so many things I can say. But when I got sober back then, I was very blessed that there were two camps. One was the rigid ideology or the fixed, you know, dogmatic positioning. Let's put it that way. Uh -huh. 12 steps is the one and only way. And, you know, if you can't, if you can't get sober through the 12 steps, you're just not willing. There was a lot of that yeah. rigidity around me. There were also these beautiful, and in this case, there were these beautiful women that were just really deep spiritually, like 
Mary Helen Brownell, who was uh -huh. my first teacher, she was really, really helping people to have a much more gentle approach. My personal experience with 12-step is they served me for many, many years, and then uh -huh. I went on a different path. What I love about 12-step is the community that is built. You can go just about anywhere, even in, anywhere in the world now, and find a room full of for the most part, really well-intentioned and well-meaning people. We know how important community is for someone getting sober. My issue with some of 12-step is just like in any other group of people, there are a small group of people that are really dogmatic. Yes. If anyone says, I have the answer, I'm concerned. Yeah. And there are some people within the 12-step communities that say this is the one and only answer. Yeah. Conscious recovery is something that can augment or assist with whatever someone is doing. In other words, there are people who love 12-step and love conscious recovery. Mm -hmm. There are people who 12-steps don't work for them uh, for many different ways, and they love conscious recovery. Uh -huh. So, for example, as conscious recovery grows, I can imagine one day where someone is going to say conscious recovery is the answer, and I might be rolling over <laughs> laughing in my grave because it's never intended to be the answer. And just what's interesting about 12-step is if you read the early literature, the founders of 12-step, there are there's so much language in it uh -huh. very, very clearly. It actually says, we realize we know only a little. Yeah. More will be disclosed to us. Yeah. So they were recognizing that this is a, a, a framework and it's a profound framework. Yeah. It shifted consciousness on the planet and it's not the one and only answer. Yeah. And so for some people, that's controversial, which is interesting to me. And I understand because when someone finds something that saves their life, yeah. they can become re uh, religious. I, that's, yeah. in, that was an interesting Freudian slip. I was going to say rigid, but it can almost have this religiosity feel to yeah. it. It is a profound movement that has saved millions of lives, and it's not for everyone. Or it can be for someone for a period of time, mm -hmm. and then it's time for them to do something else. Uh -huh. There are people within the 12-step movement that that would be controversial for yeah. me to say, because the fundamental truth or the, one of the fundamental principles in 12-step movement is that we have a chronic lifelong disease that needs to be treated yeah. one day at a time. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's true, right. right? I don't know that it's not true. Yeah. Uh, conscious recovery's founding principle is underneath all addictive behavior is a whole imperfect spiritual being. Those are two different frameworks and sure. yet they can blend beautifully. Carl Jung said that one of the greatest things about being Carl Jung is he didn't have to be a Jungian. <laughs> and interestingly enough, and I'm sure you know this, Carl Jung was influential in the uh, founding of 12 Steps. Yeah, I've done 12 step groups where we actually just took each step in each sentence and, and looked at it. And I said, what if this was a spiritual guide? What would it be saying? Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is the shift from Gnostic to Orthodox thinking. So Gnostic thinking, very open-minded, seeing with an inner light, kind of not really, like the Gnostics, they were literally this underground version of christianity literally in caves i don't think they had a cross but jesus was something that they saw within themselves and of course it didn't last right because it wasn't dogmatic enough <laughs> what happens invariably in any system that is beneficial is that people start copying it and they filter the knowledge of what they have what has healed them through the narrowness of their own consciousness so that it becomes reduced it becomes anybody who re-expresses a profound philosophy through a non-profound psyche will come up with a non-profound philosophy. Amen. Very well said, Ben. <laughs> Thank you. And so if you really read the steps, they were couched in the language of the day, but man, it's like a full inventory and coming to a religious change, accepting that you're out of control, making amends with people. It's really deep spiritual stuff, but if you reduce it to a series of, uh, to an algorithm, it's not gonna work. Right. It's it, not gonna work. It's gonna work. If you, if you follow the steps rigidly, you will remain sober for a time. You will go to meetings, you will write down all of your stuff and you'll meet with your sponsor and you'll do all the things and you'll show up to your commitments and you will stay sober until you don't because you haven't worked on yourself. But if you really read those steps and really like get into the juiciness of them, they're powerful, man. My experience has shown me that 
one of the largest audiences for conscious recovery are people that are between two and five years sober that aren't relapsing, but they're asking themselves, how can I go deeper? Um, I've worked the steps two or three times. Mm -hmm. I have felt relief, but there's still something. There's a pull toward going deeper, or there's a recognition that there's still more that they want to work on. Or maybe they're even um, coming out of the belief that they're broken and want to open up to a different possibility. Yeah. So again, um, my hope is that conscious recovery allows someone just one more tool in their toolkit yeah. and that 12-step programs work for millions of people yeah. and it's okay if they don't. And yeah. I think giving people permission to create their own recovery path, my, what I want to say about that though is that if you're developing your own path, and maybe this is because I'm extremely extroverted, but I encourage people to have community because there is something that seems really powerful yeah. about shared experience. Yes. And I think that's one of the brilliance, uh, brilliant aspects of 12-step. Yeah, my, uh, I tell people the four pillars of recovery, in my opinion, are, are community, accountability, structure, and faith in the process. Beautiful. If you don't have those four things, you're, you're done. <laughs> you're not gonna- you're not And chocolate gonna chip cookies. Yeah, they have those at the meetings. They have that. <laughs> and then if you develop an eating disorder or recognize one, then there's another 12-step And program. you can just fill your life up with 12 <laughs> steps. You can just do it. What else, what haven't we covered? Is there anything you'd like to, to, work, to talk about? I don't know. TJ doesn't know. What's it's, it like to have this conversation with me today? It's awesome. I love being in a conversation about this. But we've, we've come quite a ways, you and I. We sure have. I mean, look at where we are. I mean, this is pretty cool. Yeah, remember standing out 10 p.m. talking about our hope for ourselves in terms, our hope for ourselves in terms of our own evolution and the impact we can make, and we have stepped into that. And and I say that, you know, I'm going to go back to Krista Gilbert. I remember asking her as she moved from therapist to clinical director to CEO to group CEO to yeah. now CEO of a My major treatment organization. God. And I asked her, like, do you ever miss working with clients? And do you ever miss, you know, kind of the front line and being and, and she said really honestly, yes, I do. And I realize that as my career evolves and grows, I have the ability to help people that I'll never meet. Yeah. And that's something for wow. myself with the book and with um, having my curriculum now in five treatment programs and five more interested and in growing. My, my big dream is that conscious recovery is in every treatment program in the world. That's a big dream that it becomes one of the basic concepts and one of the basic modalities like cbt yeah. and dbt that i'm going to be able to help people really break the cycle of their addiction and return to their wholeness long after i'm on the planet that's right. a huge dream of mine and so one more time uh, krista gilbert is my way shower i know what i want to end on the idea of stepping into your power uh because that's really what we're talking about because that's what krista did I mean, that's really what she did. And I remember watching her rise and it was just like, holy, holy shit, she's just not stopping. And the reason that she rose is because she didn't believe that she couldn't. There was no part of her that thought she couldn't do that. And as far as I know, I mean, I remember she would say that she would sort of sit with herself and say, you know, please allow me to hold more because she was feeling overwhelmed, but she, she did. And I feel like there's a certain philosophy where you stop seeing the walls that you invisible barriers that you erect for yourself melissa stevenson was really key to that idea of like what why shouldn't you you said to me one day why shouldn't i be on oprah like i don't know why not right why shouldn't we be wealthy and famous and powerful and good at what we do why the hell not right i mean look at freaking arnold schwarzenegger i mean he did whatever he wanted to do and he wasn't even born here well and i think i think one of the things i i would love to talk about i think this is really great because there's actually a chapter in my book called owning your power when we're talking about power we're not talking about force right um david hawkins book power versus force we're talking about stepping into the infinite power that we are and then when we step into that power when i stepped into that power more fully i got to see the prison that i had built or the right. walls that i'd built and so for me it's a two-step process it's really owning that power and recognizing that infinite potential mm -hmm. and also unlearning all the bs belief systems that i've built up i mean in my own life i had 
in the last two weeks, I got to host a dinner of 20 people with Marianne Williamson, who is running for president of the United States, and really? then host an event five days later for wow. Michael Beckwith, who's one of the most powerful spiritual teachers of our time. Uh -huh. And I'm not saying that because, oh, isn't it cool that I've done this, but the work that I had to do in order to step into that was recognizing my infinite power, right. not my human power, because that the human mind and the ego will always limit me. It doesn't matter what it is. It's always a limitation, even right. if it's, I'm going to be on Oprah 12 times. That's a limitation. What if I'm going to start a school with Oprah, right? So in other words, the ego is that part of ourselves that is the force and the the beingness is really the infinite possibilities yeah well i think we're done what do you think feels, i think we're done feels done yeah this is when the music starts playing okay. <laughs> thank you so much ben this has been a really rich conversation and for the listeners what i want to say if no one has told you today you are an infinite being you are infinite possibility, and you are a whole and perfect person. Jesus, I wish I'd heard that when I was a kid. <laughs> that would have really helped. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by going to my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate. <laughs>